Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ready and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode 18 of the No Popcorn Film and Music Podcast. Back once again with David Higgins. Hey Dave, how are you? I'm good, man. And I'm also here with Norma Howard. Hello, how are we? I say here, but of course, once again, it is remote. I think everyone understands right now at this point what we're all going through, that we're all still in our respective areas. So last time out, we did 8 Mile. This time out, as you heard in the incredible intro music there, it is, of course, Bross After the Screaming Stops, a documentary from a couple of years ago. It's been a while since we've done a documentary. Uh, I think, Higgs, you were the one who suggested doing one, and straight away, this was the one to go to. There wasn't even much of a conversation, was there? No, not at all. Um, So this was my first time coming to it. I believe, Norma, your first time seeing it as well. I know you'd seen it, Dave, and you'd... um you talked about it when when it first came out. It kind of it aired over Christmas a couple of years ago, and it became a, a viral hit. Um, everyone was talking about it, um, and yeah, I, I was excited to do it because I, I'd heard um, Spinal Tap comparisons. Um, I'd heard bickering. Um, you know, you're, you're dealing with a band who were kind of a parody even when they were at their height. Um, so it kind of has all the ingredients for uh, a good doc. Absolutely. And some kind of monster comparisons as well, which of course we have done. But before we get into that, we'll get into what we've been watching or what we've been consuming in this isolation time. Myself, uh, I forgot to mention on the last show, 
Uh, I don't know how I forgot to mention this, but I revisited Point Break, the original, of course, not the terrible, terrible remake. And it is just as glorious as it ever has been. It's one of the most perfect, ridiculous films ever. Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze, gods among men. It's just unbelievable. It has so much in it that has been obviously lampooned and memed over the years, but it's just a good movie. It's also just plainly ridiculous. I'm kind of still baffled as to the fact that it got made. And as I did note there, there is actually a terrible remake, which was made a few years ago. And it's terrible. It's really, really bad. Don't ever watch it. It also contains a line of dialogue in it. Uh, several lines of dialogue that are just out of control. One of which is when the terrible, bland, Aussie version of Johnny Utah describes what they're up against. And he says, I believe these men, like me, are extreme athletes. And then later... <laughs> The version of Bodhi, who's played by Edgar Ramirez, who I actually quite like, he has a line where he's, you know, it's, it's during the kind of whole Johnny Utah gets seduced by this lifestyle scene. They're on a yacht or something. And Bodhi's like, if a tree falls in the forest and no one puts it on YouTube, did it really happen? <laughs> I was just like, no, this oh, is gosh. fucking wow. horrific. But uh, yeah, a classic film. And uh, speaking of classic films, I, I really want your opinion on this one. Um, I revisited this one. It's kind of one I've seen a couple of times, but I think every time I watch it, I think it's even better. Jerry Maguire. <laughs> <laughs> Why? This is like, I feel like I'm this podcast every time we do a rundown of like what we've been watching it's just very sporadic like it's never like the new release or anything like that it's just we're just like I don't know I just watched like a few good men for the crack um why Jerry Maguire well it followed a few good men it was very much a case of okay I want another peak Tom Cruise vehicle here and it was part of my kind of you know housemate situation where we were like cycling through movies like we watched Mean Girls the night before and then it was like okay what can we watch together again and we were like what about Jerry Maguire and one of my housemates hadn't seen it before so she was like what's it about and I was like well it's kind of hard to describe and she wasn't with it for a while she hated Cuba Gooding Jr. because obviously he screams in every scene but by the end of the film she was like this is absolutely wonderful it's a tearjerker it's perfect it's such a fucking crazy Hollywood movie. I would put it up there as it's one of the best written films. I think that that's out there. It's got a five act structure. It's Tom Cruise being built up to be brought down. He's a smug prick at the beginning. And by the end, you can't help but root for him. It's got that kid, you know, <laughs> like, I love it. Renee Zellweger's best performance. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Ouch. Higgs, you're with me on this, aren't you? Can I drop a bombshell? Oh, you have not never seen Jerry Maguire, have you? No, I've never seen it. <laughs> What the um, fuck? Yeah, I, it's I, I don't know I haven't. I'm a, I tend to be, I, I would have thought of myself as a, a cruise completist, but um, this is this is one weird like uh, blind spot for me. And I think it's like, as you said, I feel it was like a big buzzy movie at the time. Um, Cuba Gooding Jr. shouting. I feel like I've seen that a thousand times. Um, not the biggest fan of Renee Zellweger. So, and, and even... Even Cameron Crowe at the best of times, I kind of, I struggle to get on board with. So, um, yeah, I, I, I have, have very little to, to do to add to this <laughs> part of the conversation. It's got Regina King, you know, like there's, there's lots of positives in this movie. I've also, uh, I finished Mr. Robot. I can't remember if I had finished it by the last time we recorded, but I've officially finished the show. I think it's very good. Um, it's got a big ending and I think I'm mostly with it. Definitely well worth checking out during this quarantine time. I've kind of dropped off in my movies. I was binging them like crazy. I've mostly been playing games, playing Doom Eternal, playing the Final Fantasy VII Remake, and playing Control all at the same time, trying to give myself a fucking nosebleed. Uh, what else have we been watching, I guess, would be the, the main question here. 
Um, since we last met up, I, I, I made it, I made a list. I think, I think I, I shared it with you of like, you have your list that you're, you're going through with your housemate. And I was like, okay, I need to do this because every time I kind of go sit down, I'm like, what am I going to watch? What am I going to watch? So I've gone for like a couple of directors that either I've been doing a rewatch of some things or just some movies I haven't seen. So in the past week, I've taken down a few Brian De Palmas. I went uh watched Raising Cain, which is not great. Not, you know, one of his, one of his high points. Uh, it's definitely him. It's definitely him kind of going over uh, a lot of the themes that he likes to do. Hitchcock references all over the place. It looks good. John Lithgow is good in it. It's uh, one of those movies that doesn't age very well. A lot of his movies deal with you know, very broad mental health issues. And when you update them into 2020, they don't, uh, they don't tend to, uh, run as well. Um, what else have I been watching? Oh, I revisited, um, and, and, and a recommendation, uh, I revisited, uh, Sympathy or sorry, just Lady Vengeance, um, Park Chan-wook's third, uh, film of his vengeance trilogy. Um, a movie I hadn't watched since I saw it in the cinema like 15 years ago and at the time didn't quite like, even though I'm a big fan of his and Old Boy would be one of my favourite films. And it held up a lot better on the rewatch. Um, I think the first time around, I think I would have dinged it for was it kind of uses the storyline of Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and old boy, like it's, you know, there's a, there's an imprisonment and there's a botched kidnapping job and then kind of uses that as the, the jump off point for it. And I kind of was like, why do another movie like this? But second time around, um, it really hit home for me well, particularly in the final third. Um, I think out of the three that it has probably the more interesting things to say about vengeance and um, it's the way that it goes out and the way it deals in this kind of group catharsis of vengeance in like a pretty, you know, traditionally like his style, horrific manner. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, Choi Min-sik is great. He's like one of the most disgusting villains, I think in cinema between that and um, what's the, what's the devil movie? You you know, I saw the devil, which I saw is the devil. Yeah, fucking he's, gross. Yeah. He, he, he plays grim bottom feeder. So, so well, uh, so that that was good. Um, Did you I, cry for Lady Vengeance? No, it's <laughs> just going to be for Lady Vengeance. We, 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 we will ask. Yeah, I, I one single tear of blood came from my eye. <laughs> Empathy for Lady Vengeance. <laughs> well, yeah, that was good. Uh, what else did I watch? I I watched Vivarium, a new, moderately new release. Um, it was released. I think a couple of weeks before the lockdown, so it didn't really have a proper cinematic run. Um, this is the second film, I believe, from uh, Irish director Lorcan Finnegan, um, starring Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots as a couple who are looking to get on the property ladder. They go into a real estate agent and kind of get brought out to this massive estate in kind of the middle of nowhere that is basically endless of row of identical houses and they kind of just get dropped off there and kind of end up being trapped there. It's an interesting premise. It kind of reminded me a little bit of um, what High Rise was doing with like, you know, scaling up 
being completely disconnected from reality in a massive building in London. It was trying to do that on a kind of, you know, going out onto the commuter belt into these massive estates that are only connected by a motorway. There's bits of ghost estates in there. So like as a premise, it's interesting. It's kind of got some parental anxieties in it. It doesn't really deliver on them though. Um, interesting visually. Um, Imogen Poots is very good in it. Jesse Eisenberg is maybe a little miscast. He is a handyman in it. He's not exactly the person I think of if I was to, you know, have a job done around the gaff that I'd be getting onto Eisenberg <laughs> to do it. But worth, yeah, no, worth the watch. Uh, visually very interesting. And I'm kind of intrigued to see what Lorcan Finnegan will do next. I actually was looking to go watch Vivarium, Vivarium. Um, so it's on my, it's on my watch list. I actually have watched Bross before initially when it came out, not knowing who they were or like what the crack was. It was just like, I think actually Dave, you mentioned it and I was like, all right, well, we'll give it a go. I took a little bit of a break from films as well. I started watching, um, Unorthodox. So it's a Netflix four part series about, um, a woman from Williamsburg in New York who is a member of the Hasidic Jew community and she basically runs away from it. Like if you're looking for something to watch that's like shorter episodes rather than films and like get through a series quickly, it's good. I think it's a little bit overhyped. There is kind of like, like the story of it's interesting, but the script doesn't really pull through in it that well. Acting's pretty good, but yeah, it's like, it's an enjoyable watch if you want. Um, my main one that I've watched that I am very interested to hear what people think is, I watched Blood Simple. So it's Coen Brothers' first film. I think it's actually just Joel Cohen is directing it. They both worked on the screenplay and then Ethan produced it. It's uh, Francis McDormand's first film as well. And I just don't know what to make of it. It's like, you can see elements of like the Coen brothers in it because like, obviously it's their first film and everyone's just like trying things out and they're obviously like honing skill. So you can see elements of it where you're like, oh, I can see how they like made Fargo however many years later. I can see how they made this film however many years later. But it's just like, there's parts of it that are really, really good. And like, there's the cinematography is really good. I can't tell if anyone is acting well. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> it was just like, there was a point where I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with this film. Um, like a lot of it looks really interesting, but it's just strange. I've never shouted at characters on a screen so much since I watched Love Island. Like it's infuriating in parts. It seems like it's like, I think it's pretty, it was pretty low budget. Like they had to do a lot of convincing to get people on board and to get funds raised and then obviously I've had a magnificent career since but it's just interesting seeing how that began and like yeah I just I, I don't know well I think it's probably the first time that the Coens have been con uh, compared to Love Island <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so congrats on that one. Um, I kind of get some of the things you're saying. Like, I, I, I quite like it. It's been a while now since I, I've been to it. And I think that there, there's definitely um, an element of them finding their feet and perhaps finding their voice in it. So there are some pretty rough edges in it, particularly like it's a pretty nasty, kind of a mean spirited movie. And, you know, sometimes people will... Uh, kind of put that against the cones that they're pretty 
nihilistic, which I, you know, nihilistic towards their characters, not necessarily in life in general, that they put their characters through a lot. Um, I think that's definitely on show in this one. Um, Performance-wise, I, I do think it's really good. I think Francis McDormand's great. Um, it's John Getz in the lead is really good. And uh, mm. Emmett Walsh is like a great, great villain in it. Um, yeah. Definitely one I want to revisit because um, it's it's not like in my top five. I, I don't even know if it's in my top ten. I haven't definitely done my ten Coens in a while. But um, it's definitely an interesting debut. And you can see all the kind of kernels of the things that they... Um, that they, they will go for to do in the likes of Fargo or even like a Miller's Crossing. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Have you seen it, Dave? Yeah, it is. It is. It is very good. It's like I, I'd agree with you. I would have some problems with the Coen. Sometimes they can be kind of uh, a little bit too on the dark side. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I appreciate the kind of duality of what they do. I think I once said that my top three Coens was Inside Lewin Davis, Miller's Crossing, and No Country for Old Men. But then I realized after the fact that like, oh fuck, I left out the Hood Sucker Proxy, which has to be in there. So I find it very very hard to get them down to three. Uh, I guess we can't let the recommendation section end without mentioning the glorious Netflix series Sunderland Till I Die, which actually has DNA with the Bross documentary because I think it has the same filmmakers or at least some members of the personnel. Um, this has been on Netflix for a while. Season 2 came out recently. Uh, it's about Sunderland Football Club in freefall, essentially, as they drop down to the championship and then, spoilers, League One. Um, eight episodes in Season 1, six episodes in Season 2. I've binged it in the last kind of week and a half or two. It's genuinely fascinating. The devastation that follows this club around is astonishing. The cast of characters that are there are amazing from club directors uh, who are straight out of an Alan Partridge or a office-style situation to players, some of whom are mercenaries, some of whom are local lads who want to just do well, to the fans who you spend a lot of time with. I mean, it's genuinely kind of fascinating. I know that we're going to talk about, in the Bross documentary, was it a case of where Bross stitched up or, you know, what, is there any kind of ulterior motive with the filmmakers? Um, not to jump ahead, but I kind of feel like with Sunderland Until I Die, it's more a case of finding yourself in this incredible situation as it unfolds and having unfettered access to everything and that opening up this just kind of bizarre world. Um, you can absolutely watch this thing and just kind of laugh at the plight of Sunderland, but I think by the end of it, you're very much rooting for the people at the heart of this. At the same time, it is just this strange world of a football club just collapsing at every opportunity and every time hope creeps in for a second the rug just gets fucking pulled out like fucking crazy and yeah i i i want more please i don't know how next season will look if they do it because obviously coronavirus has come along so that's another thing that sunland have had to deal with along with everybody else what a, th- <laughs> what a third act for season three <laughs> coronavirus um i think i think when we were talking about metallica before i made reference to um a documentary, The Four-Year Plan, which was about QPR. It was about in like 2011. And at first, that's kind of what I thought uh, was happening with Sunderland Until I Die, where a club kind of gives filmmakers, um, you know, unfettered access to, to them to record them at their worst and, or, you know, what they might think as their best. And, you know, perhaps that they were making sort of a, a, a kind of a PR piece, but in reality, and they end up looking a lot worse. And there is elements of that in Sunderland Till I Die. Like, um, you know, in the first season, it's kind of the the managing directors. You you, you mentioned the partridgeisms. Um, 
you know, you're first introduced to their first um, kind of chairman, Martin Bain, who's this former Scottish male model. You're first introduced to him in a, like, in a swimming pool. This is a guy who wears, you know, skin tight dress shirts in every meeting, always with like multiple buttons, you know, going down. Um, and he's like, he's a great source of parody. Like he, he just seems like a person who spouts something out of a TED talk in the hope that it's going to motivate, you know, just workers in like the canteen or in the, in the PR department. And I was kind of apprehensive going into the second season because I was like, you know, the, you know, it's, it's, I'm not giving a spoiler. The club is sold and they have new owners. They previously had this American owner who was kind of removed and was letting other people kind of make the decisions. They get bought by a an Englishman, Stuart Donald, and he, he comes in and he's had some success and it's like, okay, he's gonna bring it kind of back to back to the roots, back to the you know, Sunderland are a very working class country in a very sorry, working class club in a very working class part of England, um, that's kind of defined by industry and defined by um Sunderland Football Club. And Within the first episode, they, they they find a new a new man to to kind of run things. Uh, Charlie Methven, who, if Martin Bain with his tight shirts was you know not someone that you would imagine to see around the stadium alive or Roker Park back in the day, Charlie Methven is like the most London of London. You know, I think he was an Eton. He he went to Eton, so that Eton of David Cameron, of Boris Johnson, of Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's he's from that cloth. He's wearing you know um, like electric red trousers, <laughs> and also is very 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 big big on himself. Um, so a great great source of amusement. But as because you mentioned, it does get to the heart of the city. It 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 kind of even if you have no interest in football, it kind of will give you. Uh, an understanding on why this means so much for so many people in it. And there is such a really, really sweet human side to it, whether it be the the canteen workers, whether it be the taxi driver. Highly recommend it. Yeah, I loved it. All right, let's jump into Bross after the screaming stops. The reality of getting back together is to see if we can put blood back into the veins of a very big hotbed. Hey, Brosky. Family can be challenging, but we are brothers. We will find a way. I had like an epiphany. I was like, this is meant to be difficult. I don't need to do this. Honestly, I'm absolutely knackered. We are behind schedule. It's a massive workload. We rub each other the wrong way in. We need to fix this. a taster there of Ross after the screaming stops this is a documentary that like I wouldn't have been expected to find myself recommending to people but it was a situation where I ran on the BBC a couple of years ago I think maybe it had come out in cinemas and there was just like a bit of buzz in the reviews and kind of on Twitter a lot of people saying you have to see the Bross documentary you have to see the Bross documentary and I was like who the fuck would want to see a Bross documentary this makes no sense but instantly everyone was just like the quotes are out of this world. Their characters are ridiculous. It's very spinal tappy. It got the comparisons to the Metallica documentary amongst others. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll check it out. And I think within about less than five minutes, you're like, yeah, okay, I'm in. It's about 90 minutes long, which is great. Um, Bross, for anyone who does not know, uh, are an English band because they're back. And this is all about them coming back. Formed in 1986 in England. uh, And they kind of had a good run for a few years, about kind of six years. It's around the late 80s, turn of the 90s. And it is exactly the kind of naff pop that you would expect and anticipate. Really, really big, bleach blonde hair, 
Uh, Matt and Luke Goss, the twins, are kind of at the forefront of this. There was another guy in the band uh, who barely ever gets talked about. Craig Logan was his name. He's not a part of this documentary. He's not a part of the Reformation. Uh, it's basically about these two guys who are twins, although I think there's like 11 minutes in the difference or something. I think Luke Goss is technically the big brother, but Matt Goss definitely acts like the alpha male of this group. We'll get there. Um, essentially... They were loved. They were huge. They were massive. And you see it in the documentary. You see, like, fans outside the house. You see young girls fucking fainting and collapsing when they come in with, like, like, like when they come in, like, within touching distance of these guys. And there was a time when they were, like, the biggest thing in the world. And probably just as fast or not too long after, they were inevitably spat out the other end by the media and by just the fickle nature of the pop industry. They went on to do different things. Uh, I think myself and Higgins probably share a bit of a, a bit of a soft spot for Luke Goss because he wound up as the villain in Blade 2 and the villain in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And I would contend that um, I'm on Guillermo del Toro's wavelength. I think he actually did a really, really good job. He did, however, eventually find his level in the likes of straight-to-DVD Death Race sequels that Jason Statham left for him and lots of just generic-as-fuck kind of action man drama stuff that is not very good and doesn't really test... I guess he doesn't have terrible, too much range, but I maintain that he is good in those Del Toro movies. Maybe just takes a good director. Matt Goss, meanwhile, as this film shows us, went on to become uh, not 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 seen since Sinatra in his pomp, this Las Vegas residency that he got for himself. At uh, one stage, I think he's in his studio and someone comes in and she's like, I don't understand how you're not the biggest name in pop music in the entire world. I don't know how everyone doesn't know Matt Goss. So they do have pedigree to a degree. I don't know how much that counts. Uh, it is genuinely genuinely difficult to know where to start with this one. So I think, you know, Higgs, you've watched this twice now. The first time you watched it and you were like, I need to watch this again. What kind of experience did you have on those two occasions? So the the, the need for a rewatch, and I, I only watched this um, a week ago for the first time. And and the need to rewatch it was down to, and it's, it's, it's I can only kind of compare it to the first time that I saw Anchorman. And I was laughing so much watching it that I knew that I was missing other jokes. <laughs> um, so immediately, I think, like you said, within within the first five minutes, and e- even with the with the build up, and you know, you typed it quite a bit. And I remember, I remember when it came out at the time, and I remember the buzz on Twitter. So I kind of went in with pretty pretty high expectations that this was going to be ridiculous, but I don't think I was ready for the level of ridiculous that it was. So yeah, um, the first time was just like enjoying it as a kind of absolutely absurd documentary about two absurd people. um, And, you know, trying to, to to wrap my head around this, um, this kind of mania that surrounded them for a time. Like I I remember Bross, I, I was definitely too young to have, been alive when uh, when will i be famous came out but i do remember that my name and i always remember them as a, a thing of ridicule like even now when when, when you said bros the, the first thing that comes to my head and even though before maybe i even heard their songs i knew that bros as a pejorative acronym stood for british rubbish on stage and that that was something that was like deeply ingrained into me when I was like eight or nine years old. I knew this. So like when, when someone said bros, that would come out of my mouth, even though I didn't even really know what I was saying. So even over here in Ireland, you know, in the early nineties, 
I knew that these lads were, you know, they were a joke. Um, (laughs) So it was really trying to like wrap my head around the phenomenon of them like the first time and also just like dealing with the nonstop quotes and kind of, you know, we alluded to it that we were like, I was like, are they, are they being stitched up, uh, you know, in, in, in the first part? It's like, you know, have the, have the filmmakers engineered this in a way to make them absurd? You know, I'm, I'm thinking early, early doors and Luke is going up into the Hollywood Hills like our friend Jared Leto, but he's not throwing stones. He's like meditating. <laughs> and the, 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 those kind of scenes are the kind of scenes that you would think that a, you know, a documentary filmmaker who's seen a couple of movies about, um, you know a couple of rock documentaries before kind of knows the things that you could do to to make your uh, subjects look absurd and then by the time it got to matt kind of introducing his kind of like his vegas house his very opulent vegas house with uh, you know a mineral collection that hank schrader and breaking bad would die for (laughs) (laughs) and then i started like pivoting to to kind of wondering it's like are they do they know is there they they can't they have to be somewhat aware of how absurd they are so i was kind of just confused that's why the the, the second watch was kind of necessary and i think there are things in the, in the back half of it that kind of hit home uh, a little bit more on a human level uh, that i wanted to get to as well i find that so gas that the, you had like the acronym for brass i also find it weird that because i didn't know who they were at all i just like Dave had been like, you should watch this documentary. I'd never heard of Bross. I'd, I'd heard, obviously, the song, When Will I Be Famous? So I didn't know whether they were meant to be good, whether they were meant to be bad. But like, I did, I I remember the time reading like just like a Wikipedia article about them to be like, I was just going to see what the buzz is. And they are the youngest band to ever play Wembley. So I was like, okay, they have to be of a standard to be able to do that. And like, even in the documentary, there's one point where they're discussing how they turned down the support slot for a Michael Jackson tour. I was like, so they, like they had to be good. I can't tell if they're a good band. <laughs> I like, because there's like, obviously there's a lot of discussion, like Matt Goss, who is the lead singer, um, obviously has like a really good singing voice. Like he can sing and like he definitely has a lot of stage presence and a lot of like pizzazz um so i can see why he definitely sued something like vegas and then obviously luke is the other brother who's kind of struggled with being known as like the untalented goss brother and like could like kind of like sid vicious style like could he was he really playing the instrument could he was he able to do it so yeah it was a it was a bit of a weird one because i was like how do they get to such mega levels of fame but be this ridiculous and this strange and there's even actually i think there's a line fairly early on in the in the documentary where macos is like um brass isn't has never been something that britain has been like proud of which sounds fairly accurate even though they sold out <laughs> um it's not Wembley that they're playing this time what is the they're playing the O2, O2 in their comeback so like yeah so obviously this documentary was made under the rebooting bros and uh playing this massive yeah, it's, like it's not entirely clear like it's kind of strange because I mean like the context could be clear like like they tell you at the start of it that that you know in like kind of a radio voiceover Bross are back and they're doing a comeback show at the O2 and it's you know it's sold out or whatever and this whole film is built around the countdown to the gig essentially but and something until I die again they have the same filmmakers in the crossover I believe 
sometimes the context could be a little bit clearer and like you know it's not something i would usually complain about like you know walk the cheap seats through it but there are times when like it's never really addressed why they're doing the comeback they're just doing the comeback and you're dropped in in media res like one of the first things you see when this film opens is they have a massive bust up on this morning and it's about kind of like how do we get to that but to go back even further though real quick and just give you a taste of kind of what they are like playing off each other uh, Bross, as Higgs notes, makes for a fine acronym. Uh, it wasn't always the first choice, though. They went through a few names, so let's take a listen to that. It was hilarious because we had so many names in, of different bands. I mean, every week we changed our band. I don't even know those names like Summerhouse, there was Gloss, there was Caviar. We had no idea why it was. We just knew it was expensive. And then we found out it was Fish Eggs. We were like, it's probably not a good, a good look for a band, Caviar. We had Epitome, which I believe is Latin for abstract. That was our little kind of let's try and be clever moment. I think we called Ice, which is just fucking horrible. So my personal favourite there would be Caviar, I think. But, it's uh, pretty good. <laughs> it's regal. It's luxurious. Not uh, Epitome. Epitome. <laughs> epitome. It's Latin, I think. I also love that like when they, when they were like... Um, we thought caviar sounded cool and it's like, oh, it turns out it's fish eggs. And it's just like, what? But then you also remember that they were like 1920, actually probably younger at that stage when they first started playing in bands. And I can fully imagine like 18 year old lads just being like, oh, what do we call the band? Caviar? And just trying to sound cool. Um, and then, yeah, landing on Bros, which like, again, is bros, <laughs> but pronounced Bros. I just don't know. Sometimes I find this documentary so stressful because there's points where like it is really funny and it is really quotable and laughable. And then there's other times where I'm just like, why was this allowed? Why didn't anyone just shut this down and just go, look, we all need a breather. Maybe come back in the next 28 years and we'll see how we feel then. Just relax. Well, it is. I mean, like there is a wider argument to be made about the pop industry. Uh, you know, like it's they have every right to turn around and say that, you know, we're always a bit of a gag and Britain wasn't as proud of us as they should be. I mean, they've got ideas above their station. They think they're a much more compelling, you know, like pair of musicians than they actually are. Luke Goss on the drums. I mean, we talked about it in the Artifact episode about 30 Seconds to Mars. And there are some similarities here for sure. Luke Goss is very much a flourish drummer, I would say, uh, much like Shannon Leto. Like he can do it. He can play drums. But fuck me, he is having a three act play when he gets behind that kit. It's ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it's it's a strange one because, I mean, the countdown to the gig is, is kind of what, what revolves around this. And you go through the whole story. It's, I mean... Who is the more likable Goss? Would you say out of the two of them? Um, I mean, at the at the beginning and may, and maybe the first time, um, maybe because of um, familiarity with him in his film roles, and that he he doesn't seem as uh, wildly pretentious as his uh, eleven minute younger brother. <laughs> I I would be Team Luke. I, I I would say, and that's kind of where you go throughout the movie like he seems kind of like you know I, i'm not saying he's the most level-headed person in the world but you know when when put against his brother um he seems like fairly regular um he does seem to have been dressed like he was been shopping in like the midlife crisis section of h&m where there's a <laughs> you know 
there's a rock band t-shirt for every day of the week and it's either it's insane it's nirvana keep it's green it's nirvana it's green day it's kirk cobain it's blondie it's the who it's soundgarden which that was a that was a nice one but it, it quite literally is you know fe- festival season and and someone who hasn't been out in a while and it's like oh here we go i'll get my you know <laughs> he's also He's also rocking, and he has this on all the time. He's rocking a fucking hash leaf sweatband on his wrist, like, and it's just like, Luke, come on, there's no need for this. You're 45 or whatever you are. It's like that he's in constant rebellion, perhaps against the pop image that he had. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would say... You know, I don't think his film career is is glowing, but he, you know, he's got two good movies under his belt, and he is working a lot, and he he does a lot of movies. He works hard by all accounts. He's well revered by Ron Perlman, who shows up for about forty seconds in this movie um, <laughs> and gets so, out. So, so in in my mind, it's like that. You know, that's you've 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 separated yourself from the drummer with the with the blonde hair who used to wear the same clothes as his brother. But yes, still, as if like to distance himself, he feels the need to wear basically like, you know, metal drummer, um, you know, this is this is just what you wear if you're a metal drummer. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do. To come back to it, Luke is the more likable. But second time around, I think the things that he says are preposterous. But Matt seems like he might have a kinder soul. Luke does seem like he's got a bit of a wicked temper on him. Um, oh, he does. That, yeah, and, and I mean, and Matt, Matt will retort, but Luke does seem like there's there's a ch- there's a real chip on his shoulder, and maybe Matt has found peace with you know w- with their with their f- stardom as as teenagers and into their twenties, while Luke has not. I was Team Luke all the way for most of it, but then like he does body shame his session musicians in the very next breath after endearingly referring to himself as a spoiled brat for favoring Tama drums and Zillagen cymbals. You know, it's just like th- every time you-, you think you're on his side, he just throws his fucking toys out of the pram. And I mean, actually, I guess one kind of example of this would be when they are in rehearsals and like Luke's been there for a while, Matt's just shown up, he's come back from Vegas or whatever. And Matt comes in and starts fucking trying to run the show in his own, by the way, his like, and this must've cost about $500, like his diamond studded tacky as fuck river Island, rolling stones t-shirt and the hat that he has on the entire time. But they're basically trying to like get a song going together. And this happens. Whenever you want. Really, don't try it, please. Just try it like the Phil Collins. Well, that was a feel like play, and that feels like so if every, you can't okay, get the okay. groove from that, then All I don't right. know. Can we, can we try a couple more, and then we all come into the one? Yeah, that ring, ring, blah, boom. It's still the thing, maybe. Just a suggestion. I'm not saying what feel to do. Just a I've got a style, dude. Okay, yeah, I don't yeah, know what I know. to say. Okay. I'm not saying change the sound, I'm saying maybe... T- no, I want to make you, I want you to like it too. But I think it might sound the le- the length. unbelievably powerful. Just try, well, then try, try a couple of things that you feel comfortable with. That's what I'm with saying, let's just keep, keep trying some things. Just yeah. try a couple of, you do a couple of things and we'll come in, Luke. So it goes... Whenever you want, literally whenever you want, we're on you.
I think it sounds phenomenal. Yeah. Like, it's a great idea. So you hear there that like Luke initially is like re- resistant to trying it, and then he's like, "I think it's phenomenal." <laughs> he's like, "I think it's so powerful." But then I, what I haven't included there is he immediately starts giving out about how, "Hey, if I have an idea, I want to try it." By the way, and they're like, "Sure." And then he goes, "Yeah, no, no I'm just saying, like, if I have an idea, I want to fucking try it." Yeah. And then Matt's like, yeah, that's fine. And then they just get into this massive row. Like, every time these two guys start rowing, it is a classic sibling row where no one can get a word in edgeways. Everyone's just talking over each other. Everyone's just shouting at each other. And that obviously brings its own problems. But yeah, I don't know. I found myself kind of on the second watch being a little bit more like, fuck me, these guys are almost unbearable in an endearing way. I don't know. I mean, it's it's tough to know who wins or who loses. I'm I'm like Luke all the way, baby. I just thought he would like, he just seems like definitely the far more chill brother, despite like the clip that was just played. I think like at the base of this, the hardest thing for them to overcome, like other than just like being two brothers who were were in this huge pop band for a while that broke up, is that you've got like an enormous ego versus someone who's trying really hard to prove themselves and neither of them like being humiliated. It like, it just, I don't know how they were ever banned because it's just like, I don't know how anything got done. <laughs> it was just like, this point I was like, I'm so stressed out because like, again, like one of the, the, one of the weird dynamics they have is like, there was a point where two of them are doing an interview and at the end of it, Luke um, is like, uh, there was actually a couple of questions there that I didn't get to answer. I was shut down. So could you just ask me them again? And then Matt's like, what? <laughs> like you could see him inside, like his brain going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And it's just, it's so stressful to watch. And then he, they go back and they're like, so what, 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 what question? Can you remember what it was that you wanted to answer? And he's like, no, I, no, I can't. But I still think he definitely comes up as the more sympathetic sort of underdog of the two. Because Matt is just like, exudes this mad confidence. Like obviously he has talent, but also just like, was obviously let run amok and say whatever he wants because he just says mad shit. I guess uh, every, everyone in Vegas is a yes man. And maybe that's why Matt is like that. It, it's funny, the, the the thing that you mentioned there about them them bickering, even within the documentary and like giving out to the documentarians about what they're being asked. If you read any interviews about them doing press after this, so many of the journalists will mention how at one stage, one or the other will complain that all the good questions are being asked of one brother. <laughs> um, even, even though, even oh. though the journalist is like, you, you can, you can answer this one. That's totally fine. And they're like, no, the moment's over now. And it's, um, yeah, I, I think what's interesting about it is that they, they were a very, very different band back then to the band that they are now. Um, and not just because it's been 28 odd years or 25 years, however, however long it was. Back then, they were very much, even though they, they began themselves as a band and they started this band themselves with Craig Logan, they were very much taken down the manufactured route quite quickly by... Um, their manager, who at the time was the manager of the Pet Shop Boys. Um, so him and another person kind of basically set out the roadmap for their career. They, they wrote all their songs for them. Um, they also, when they wrote them and put them on the record, they credited themselves as the brothers. So everyone had the idea that it was actually Bross writing it. So 
everything that they did back then was probably very, very contained. And they were basically just told, go here, do this. Um, later in the movie, we see a pretty awful example of that, where their, their sister is um, killed in a car accident. And later on that night, they're just ushered on to TV in front of cameras while when you when you jump forward they're very much kind of the masters of their own destiny now i don't think that there is a someone you know a puppet master telling them what to do and telling them where to go so they're very much making these decisions decisions they may not have ever really made before in the context of bros and then it kind of just leads to them kind of killing each other (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say, and I don't mean this in a terribly disparaging way, they are overgrown children. They just happen to be successful, and they happen to be, and they're probably, you know, I, I don't know if I can say that they're jealous of each other's success, but it's interesting that, you know, one's an actor, and granted, yeah, I mean, Higgs earlier on mentioned that Luke Goss has two great films under his belt, and they are, of course, Death Race 2, co-starring Sean Bean, and Death Race 3, co-starring Dougray Scott and Ving Rhames, but, like, essentially, and then you got know, Matt's got his Vegas residency, they're, they're, they're both doing well in terms of, they're not a broad mania heights or anything but like you're always going to look at what the other person has and i think that the fact that they have this kind of division is interesting um on top of that though i mean just to carry on as well with what you're saying about the management aspect of it and kind of what norma was saying earlier on about how luke felt that he was in the shadow which is a recurring theme throughout uh, he does get some good play on that so let's just take a listen there my manager once said luke goes his illiterate ability to string a sentence together what's my contribution Am I like a, you know, a version of a freak show? I felt like I was a waste of space. I felt I was useless. I'd be jealous sometimes of the attention that he would get. He was perceived as the gifted one. He was the favorite. I would retreat into a place of solitude or retreat to a place of recovery. So if my feelings were hurt in the studio and I wanted to communicate something with my brother, there was definitely, you know, adults that I had to traverse around to even get there. And sometimes I was like, fuck, I don't have the energy for this. If you don't have my corner with these motherfuckers who are telling us how to play, how to speak, how to talk, how to think, he could have quite easily said, you don't let that dude sit behind that kit, then you don't hear me sing on the mic. It was interfering with family. It's a crime, it's a sin. And even to stay, my brother doesn't always get it. That's a perfect, like, the height of me being like, oh, poor Luke. Because it's just like, he just wanted to play drums, man. (laughs) He just wanted to be in a band. And like, it is hard because there's actually, like, when we were talking earlier about like where they stitched up and they're shown up as to be these sort of like clowns and like they have all these ridiculous quotes. There are moments in the documentary where you do actually feel quite bad for them and like that is a huge one there because he goes on to talk about how uh, I think like the main reason why they why he broke up the band so Luke decides to break up the band because one of their singles like a couple of them aren't doing very well I think he's just like this is becoming quite stressful I can't hack this anymore he's like 21 or 22 and he's just like I've had it so he leaves the band and he said that he woke up one morning and there's like men he doesn't know driving his cars away and like just like he lost everything he had to ask his wife for the engagement ring back and it's those moments where like you're like wow that like that is really tough and like they were just kids who were just trying really hard who just like wanted to have the crack doing this thing um so I do think there is like it's moments like that where you see a bit more of a balance of they're just trying to show 
behind the scenes what was actually going on and the media are pretty awful as well yeah the contrast in the media is interesting uh there's also the bit where but again just when you're kind of really settling into it oh yeah these guys are awesome i'm on their side you get matt goss saying stuff like well you know i was having my 15 minute nap in the bath and then someone took a photo of me and i'm like hang on sorry what you're you're having your what <laughs> like now, as a bath connoisseur, as no encore listeners will know, the one thing that I know not to do, guys, is fall asleep in the bath. It's not really a good idea, but Mac also, I guess, just has enough kind of zen-based life experience that he'll wake himself up. But yeah, like, you get these kind of weird tempered moments. And I think another kind of aspect as well is, like, there are times, I mean, I guess we should, like, do you, do you end up rooting for them, like, w- w- would be a question to ask. And I mean, ultimately, I think so. I think, yeah, uh, there are points where, and like, any, any documentary like this has to kind of have a certain arc. It has to have you know the fall the rise the the refusal of the call whatever the fuck you know and something that you can look at is tragedy and kind of life circumstances and this documentary i think does a good enough job of not getting too maudlin about it um and one such moment i thought was genuinely affecting and kind of knocked me out was the death of their mother because like i say they are clearly two overgrown children and they are very much like their their mother's sons. Their mother was obviously fiercely proud of them. And this moment here I'm going to play now where Matt talks about that, I, I found it to be genuinely, genuinely touching. I believe that the day you lose your mum for a man is the day you become a man. Because the phone call that you need to make does not exist anymore. She was my best mate. She's my, she was my confidant. She was my consigliere. She was, she was the person that I I believed that was interested in my life. I feel like the one thing we could have given to her earlier was the reunion where she could have seen her boys. Where she could have seen her boys connect um musically and emotionally so like i say genuinely touching but he also does throw in a a a godfather reference there for some reason which again you're just like for fuck's sake this guy can't go five words at the same time i i think there's a, a huge amount of truth in what he says and you can see the resentment on his face resentment towards himself and towards his brother for the two of them just not copping the fuck on earlier because that line about how the one thing we could have given her was this reunion while she was still alive that is a genuine fucking okay that's huge that is a that will haunt him forever and you know for all the ridiculous quotes and believe me we're not scratching the surface at the end of the day you know, this guy's a human being, Luke Goss is a human being, and they love their mother, and they obviously desperately wanted her to be there one more time to see them. And that is something that really just punches through all the kind of noise here and all the gloss, which I found to be a really uh, kind of impressive thing. I mean, the filmmakers themselves obviously don't know what they're going to get until they sit down, but, you know, it is gold from that point of view, but it's I think it's handled well. Yeah, I, I agree. And I do, like, you know, I think you, you, you spend the first two-thirds of this movie laughing at them and then you know the final third actually wanting well for them um i think that they were even though they had massive success like um they were dealt a pretty raw deal like 
you know, you and No Anchor will talk about kind of say someone like Billie Eilish's ascent and, you know, someone that young getting that level of exposure. And I think we we hopefully, and you, you probably know this better than I, have more systems in place for people to have that kind of meteoric rise now where, you know, more people looking after you rather than like more people looking for a handout and more people looking to make money off you, exploit you. Those people still exist. I would hope that there are more people. There seems to be in sport anyway, which would be kind of what what I lean on. So they got dealt like a very tough, uh, tough come up, I guess, as, as successful artists. They were at a time where, you know, the tabloid were starting to become really, tabloid press were like starting to become really, really, really nasty. Um, this was, you know, they they were in the ascendancy when the sun were at their most disgusting around time of Hillsborough. And not to say that they got the same treatment as that, but they, it was this kind of very ugly, ugly side to the, the tabloid press, um, which is a lot to deal with. So I'm happy that they kind of found their peace and they've gone on to do something else. But by the end of this, you do, you do want well for them. They are gobshites i think but you know i say that in kind of a, like an an endearing way that they are gobshites um and that they they, they are me- well meaning they by all accounts seem good with fans they seem good with their family um the stuff with their mother is very affecting that home video of her is lovely like it, it's 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 one kind of bit of archive footage that it, that is put in here um, and it's very, very affecting. So, yeah, I kind of come out cheering for them a little bit, which is not something that I kind of intended to do. Yeah, like I was saying, I just like there are those kind of more reflective moments that do affect you. And like there was a point where when they have that this morning bust up, I think it's like four days to the gig. Is it something? It's something like that where it's just it's like the gig is like impending doom. And I was just like, they're not going to make it. It's very close. Like, like it- it's like a, it's like a ticking time bomb over them. Let's actually just take a listen to that blow up because that's one of those real fucking like watching through your fingers moments. Spelling out to you, I am more nervous than I thought I would be about the O2. All right, I'm very intimidated about what I'm having to do. This I understand. This I understand. Hang on a minute. So I, as I stand by what I said, we're under a great deal of pressure. I think we react. We had an argument. Just because that there are some shortcomings in regards to creating the music. Now, whether we like it or not, I don't want the fucking job. We are behind schedule, and there's a lot. There's a massive workload. I know. I'm a massive workload. I don't pressure. Trust me. I know how to get it. Mate, there's no less hiding from me than you. I am so overwhelmed. I do not have the chance to retain any information yet. I haven't even had the fucking chance to sing yet. I was embarrassed. I'm learning my instrument. No, no, no. Let's not. Hang on. I'm learning. No, don't, don't shut me down. I'm going to speak. I'm listen. No, I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak. You're going to speak. You're going to speak, are you? You're going to speak. Because I have just told you how I feel. What is this? This is what it is. It's passive aggressive. Because you are what I'm saying. I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak. That's what you do. That's what you do. Fuck you. Fuck yourself. Fuck yourself. Let me tell you. Fuck yourself. Yeah, so there is like a. A moment where you're just like, please just get to the gig, just please get there. And like those watching them fight and give out that much is so stressful. But there are like some like charming moments, like there are moments where like they're saying something ridiculous, but there, but there is kind of like, a, oh, look at the lads. Like whenever they're talking about like their home life and stuff like that, like it does seem a bit nicer. And there's like... The moment where they're talking about the games they played when they were younger and all they had was a singular dart. 
that they would throw <laughs> into the air and just stand and basically like play chicken with a dart. Um, and uh, just like stuff like that where you're like, oh, they're like, they're sweet and they're just like brothers who do pick at each other, but it's just like on a more magnified because they're just extremely emotional people as well. Yeah, not to uh, not to spam this episode with clips or anything, but again, this is one of the more quotable films that's out there. Uh, that moment that you mentioned there where they talk about their kind of poor upbringing and like, you know, having one dart was like all they needed, that itself leads to a fucking bizarre, almost Stuart Lee-esque moment, which I will play for you right now. We had one toy that we loved more than anything, and that was a dart. We didn't have a dartboard that went along with it. We had a dart. We used to throw it up in the air as hard as we could. And we would stay as still as we could for as long before it landed. One time it unfortunately landed in Matt's ribs. In my rib. Granddad pulled the dart out, gave it back to me, and we carried on playing. And now you can't even play Conkers in England. Can we start a petition in, in honor of Bros, please? Can we start an honor do how what? ridiculous it is that you've got you can't play Conkers, and if you do, you've got to wear goggles. That is the biggest problem. Can't play conkers in England. So I think my favourite part about that, by the way, is Luke Goss just standing in the background looking completely baffled and just being like, sorry, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, Stuart Lee's got this bit about how he said, you know, I was in a cab the other day and the cab driver turned around to me and said, you know, these days, you know, like, if, if you say you're English, you know, like, he's like, they'll lock you up and put you in prison. And it just goes on for this, like, ridiculous, repetitive gag for about, like, five minutes plus. And it's all about just, like, the repetition and the total Stuart Leeism. But, like, this thing of, like, these days you can't play Conquerors in England, like, which, again, when they ended up back on fucking This Morning or Good Morning Britain, whatever it was, they, that was brought up. And Matt Goss was still not letting it go. He was like, I stand by it, man. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so they make it to the gig. It's a triumph. Um, the fan base are kind of interesting because, like, they're all like you know in their forties and fifties now, and they're like you know, like reliving their youth. Um, this is probably a good time to ask. Norma did ask it earlier on, um, and maybe it's a maybe it's an open and showcase here. But are Bros a good band? This this was something that I was very curious about because um, I don't know has uh, you know the wave of optimism in music criticism was it was a specifically a u.s thing where you know people are reevaluating the canon and suddenly people start talking about the values of someone like new kids on the block and did that kind of wave just miss the uk or are bros just actually really shit and i'm inclined to say they're just really shit <laughs> um i i will maybe on, on a level go to bat for um when will i be famous is kind of a fun song, but you know, they don't actually use a lot of brass music in this, which is interesting. They use When Will I Be Famous quite liberally at one stage and, and kind of like a, a very kind of somber moment. They, they use Cat Amongst the Pigeons, which is utterly dreadful. Um, Even the fucking name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's like a parody of a party. I don't, I don't think that they were a good band. Um, I mean, the, one of their writers who kind of wrote everything under under the brothers moniker went on to write um let's get ready to rumble for pj and duncan so that that's the kind of caliber of songsmith that we're dealing with with bros yeah and that's a fair enough reflection norman did you find yourself bopping away because yeah i will also throw in my oar here i think when will i be famous is terrible like i don't even think it comes back around that it's good you know it it was part of your youth it's a thing 
it's terrible. It's not good. Like it's it's absolutely rubbish. And also, the fact is, when they're going through their set, like y- y- you can sneak a glance at the set list for this gig. When will I be famous? Is the last song in the list because obviously it has to be. They're playing twenty fucking songs. And also, not to fucking say anything mean here, but there's a moment where they write a song for their mother, and they're performing the song, and Macos breaks down several times because he can't get through the emotion of it all. And I'm sorry, it's a really bad song. It's just not good. Is is that the one where, where he calls Big Ben the the Great Defender? Yeah, there's like, but it's weird because like there's a number of people in the room, and um, there's a lady called Shirley Lewis who is Luke's wife, who was like a backing singer for Elton John and various other people. Um, presumably that's how they met. Um, she's bawling at that song for their mom, and I was just like, <laughs> this is. It's it is stressful. Like it was one of the moments where I was like, I oh, I find this so hard. And like, I think the big thing with this documentary that I actually don't think the producers and the makers thought they would stumble across was the fact that the two lads are so emotional. Like their emotions are just simmering under the surface constantly. Like they will just go and not come back like so you like you can't like it's so easy to build drama in the documentary and to have those moments because they're good to go to kick off at any minute at anyone saying anything like Luke at one point goes outside the door to just like have a minute to himself and the Mac comes out and he's like what are you doing and he's just like I just need a minute and he's like what oh, I was just asking and then a fight ensues and it's just like and then like the documentary makers are really good at doing this uh, spooky sort of leave the door shut and just film the door with the voices going on behind it. Um, that just adds <laughs> more tension to these like super dramatic lads. All right, that's Bross after the screaming stops. It's uh, kind of a secret success, I think. I think it has a bit of everything. I'd highly recommend it. It is hard to find, though. If you head on to uh, Volta, volta.ie, which does not sponsor the show, but I will say that we all rented it on there for the fairly low price of about €3, Euro, uh, because it is hard to find, but I think it's genuinely worth sitting down to. And a lot of people I, I, who I recommend it to even now are just like, I'm not going to watch this, man, and I promise you inside five minutes you'll get it. We've barely scratched the surface. It's been a lot of fun to talk about. Next time on No Popcorn, though we're going to change it up and uh, yeah see what you make of this little clip here his children didn't know how their father made his living or why they so often moved they didn't even know their father's name he regretted neither his robberies nor the 17 murders that he laid claim to and on September 5th 1881 Jesse James was 34 years old (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. All right, so something a bit different next time on the show. It's kind of a cowboy showdown in the form of two of the most elegiac westerns you'll ever see. There Will Be Blood and The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Specifically, we're going to hone in on the music in particular. Of course, two amazing scores, you might say. I will say up front that um, I'm kind of 
furious that I have to rewatch There Will Be Blood, a film that I do not like. And I, even over Zoom, I am getting, oh, I'm getting uh, abuse. I'm getting like sign language based abuse off both of my co-hosts. Norma, you've decided to bring us down this road, this dusty trail. What is your kind of rationale this time? Um, I thought it'd be kind of, we've never done like a film versus film set up before so I thought it'd be good to kind of change it up a little bit the year was 2007 um, and there was like 2007 was a massive year for film because it also included uh, No Country for Old Men uh, Michael Clayton and a couple other really big films I chose both of these because the musical connection being that uh, Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead did the score for There Will Be Blood and he's a frequent collaborator with Paul Thomas Anderson and then Nick Cave and Warren Ellis did the score for the assassination of Jesse James by the coward, by the coward Robert Ford. I got there. I got there in the end. You it got there. Yes. No one needs to have a film <laughs> name that long. They just don't. It's not necessary. When you come for my favourite film of the last 13 years. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I just thought it'd be interesting to see how two big like big musicians adapted to score writing and how they go about it and then have an ultimate score off Wild Wild West style. All right. Hopefully I'm up for it. Higgs, I assume you're, I assume you're only delighted, Higgs. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, and I won't reveal the other idea that Norma floated, but I was like, oh, okay. And then, and then when I saw option two and I was like, oh, I get to talk about, you know, you, you said one of your favourite films of the last 13 years. I think I get to say like, two of my favorite films of the last 20 years, you know, in the top five, top 10. Um, and I think it, it, it will be interesting. Um, it is something we've kind of wanted to look at where, um, you know, traditional rock stars are making the transition into uh, soundtrack work. This was Johnny Greenwood's first time out, which is interesting. Nick Cave and Warren else had done a little bit before that. Um, Two very interesting movies to contrast, two very, very big lead performances in very different ways. Uh, we also get to deal with, uh, we also get to deal with, as Norma said, 2007 being one of the, probably the best, probably the best year of this uh, century for movies. We also had like Zodiac and Ratatouille, also a great <laughs> film. <laughs> Um, so yeah, he won a lot of Oscars. <laughs> Ratatouille or <laughs> Ratatouille, dude? Yeah, he was nominated for I loads. Love, I love Ratatouille. I wasn't trying to speak disparagingly of Ratatouille. <laughs> Never um, seen it, David. Will we just do Ratatouille instead? <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> I'm sure it's got a whimsical score. Okay, listen. So that's next time on the show. Uh, I guess just a uh, real quick on Bros. A couple, a couple of final thoughts. Why not? Because you mentioned like scoring. You mentioned music. You mentioned like p- picking the right songs. Did you guys all enjoy the acoustic song over the end credits? Do you know who that was? I, I did not. wonder. It's uh, an acoustic version of the Codaline song Brothers, or Brother, I believe it's called. That's right, Codaline are on the end credits of this movie, uh, who I, I guess I won't be going to see for eight nights in the in the Olympia Theatre, because I don't think anyone will be, go- will be going to see them in those upcoming shows, sadly. Maybe some other time, guys. But uh, yeah, it was like, fair play. You, you, got on, you got on the end credits of the best film ever made. Higgs, 
just on, on you're talking about the end credits um the score you, you kind of you mentioned earlier that there was like you know some very very modeling music playing and and two stages in this i think the, the the first time is when you're you're first introduced to luke goss actor and there's like a little bit of behind the scenes where you see him you know i think he's like a sheriff in a town and it's like it's basically chromatics tick of the clock that's just been you know jacked by someone but the score for this movie was done by none other than Labour councillor and blur drummer Dave Rowntree. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Wow. Exactly. We need the money. <laughs> I'll get it for you money. It's a passion project. So, okay, are there any, because I've got one particularly good final thought on this movie. Uh, are there any more final thoughts from the panel? Norma, what did you learn? Uh, what did I learn? Oh my God, never be in a band with your brother. <laughs> just don't do it. Um, like, it's funny because as much as we can like laugh at them and take the piss and they could be a shite band, they sold out that gig, the return gig, in seven seconds. So <laughs> they get the last laugh ultimately because they're absolutely rolling in it after that gig. Counterpoint. Um, they had a UK tour set up um, with shows in Manchester, I would imagine Birmingham, maybe even Liverpool. And post the London gig, the entire tour was cancelled due to um, music industry favourite um, cop-out, unforeseen circumstances, read as, <laughs> we didn't sell any tickets to this gig. They were supposed to play Cork as well, I think. I think it was the marquee. I was supposed to interview them and that fell apart. And I am, you have no idea how sad I am that this fell apart. Of all the interviews in my life that I've never got to do, because I was just like, like, there was no gig to promote anymore. So it was gone. Like, this happens a lot. You'll you'll often get stuff floated and then all of a sudden something will happen or just never gets followed through. And I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm devastated. I would say if you just messaged Matt Goss and said, can I have an interview? He'd bloody well do it. <laughs> well, watch this he space. He loves talking, loves saying things. Yeah, hopefully. I think you'd have to deal with the fact that Matt Goss would get really salty at you because you were just asking questions about Guillermo del Toro. He's like, ask me questions about Guillermo del Toro, Dave, <laughs> not just Luke. <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, thank you both for this episode. As always, a great pleasure. It is Matt Goss, however, who I will give the final word to. At one point in the film, I think he says something along the lines of, when comparing himself and Luke, he says something to the effect of, I'm a rectangle and he's a rectangle and that makes a square and that's a fortress or something. Like, which you're like, yeah, okay, cool. You have a certain way of thinking and a certain way of speaking and I love it. So we'll let him play us out with his summation of the last 20 30 years and where they're at now and what we've all learned. So my name is Dave Hanratty. This has been a popcorn and we'll be back again next time. If there was ever 15 one-way streets and, and one solitary two-way street where me and my brother got to meet in the middle, you helped, you helped us find that one street really We've met in the middle there. Two worlds have definitely collided. And when two worlds collide, two things happen. Destruction or the genesis of new beginnings. And you have created water on a new planet, mate.
and from that life will grow. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Introducing Peacock, the new free streaming service from NBC Universal. It's hit movies, current shows, live sports, trending bits, and timeless hits. And that's why you can't not watch. Peacock, watch for free, upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. Law and Order SVU streaming now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.